Welcome to the Deep Print Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deep Print Movies. We're a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by author and journalist Lizzie Goodman. She is the author of the now classic book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, detailing the early 2000s New York indie scene. This is a two-part podcast special. I've already spoke to Dylan and Will, the directors of the documentary, but I thought it's only fair we go back to Lizzie Goodman, who wrote the book and spent seven years working on this. 300 interviews, 700 pages, spectacular book. So this is definitely more a conversation episode than a structured interview me and Lizzie go into it deep about what books we're into, discovering music, the indie scene, fashion choices, our mutual love for Joan Didion and collecting books. So this is me and Lizzie Goodman talking for one hour. Enjoy. Sending off Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I meant Fugazi. Sorry, sorry, uh, Alexa. Uh huh. Yeah, sure. Course. No, right. Same difference, you know. Exactly the same energy. That's right. <laughs> same energy, same ethics. Totally. Same the same. energy, same ethics. <laughs> Pretty much. They Pretty have much. some things in common, to be honest. They both have bangers. Yeah. I'm... Right. Exactly. That's one of the things. Yeah. How's things with you? Good. Things are good. How are you doing? Good. Busy. Yeah, totally. Same here. But I kind of complain when I'm too busy and then get depressed when not enough is going on and I feel I'm going to go bankrupt. Oh, yes. I have. Well, you must be a freelance artist of some kind because that's basically the vibe. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have the same same problem. Yeah, we program films in London and we've expanded. We have the podcast, we have soundtracks. And Amazing. Maybe in the bathroom score is going to be our next release, I think. Or no way, well. that's incredible. Wait, wow. Gosh. Yeah, because there's, there's all that kind of beautiful kind of Steve Reich ambient stuff totally. going underneath the no, movie. They did an so. amazing job. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> wow. But I really want that Walt Whitman poem to be the opening track. So we're going uh-huh. to, but also I don't want to get sued by the Walt Whitman estate. So we're trying to work out who. His people does, are really litigious as I understand it. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, is it whoever recorded the audio? Do they own it or do people? Right. Whoever, Cause it's probably, what is that called? Public domain now. Um, if it's after like X amount of years. Yes. Right. It just becomes part, which I find so funny. It's like, if you've been dead for long enough, we own your shit is basically the theme. <laughs> this guy, Joseph Van Wysum, who plays with Jim Jarmusch, is doing a live score to Nosferatu. Ooh, fun. And be- because it's 100 years old, it's 
free license. Suddenly it's a, it's allowed. That's amazing. That's really wow. Yeah. It's funny. I wonder, I wish I understood. I should learn about it. The, the sort of like league, the origins of that decision. Yeah. It's kind of rude, isn't it? It's just it's, like you're a hundred years. So yeah, <laughs> fuck your IP dead guy. It's just, right. it's, it's awesome. And is now. it just like, that's the amount of time after which we think the sort of estate. That's where, the cutoff. <laughs> like, will they just not care? Anyone who cares would have been dead. Because yeah. 100 is not that long. No. Actually. You know, no, it but it's kind of like, I like it like, yeah, widows, ex-girlfriends, whoever, they're probably dead. So <laughs> it's ours for the taking. Yeah. We feel like it's safe that you're dead too now. So anyway, we're going to, yeah, it's just funny. It's a funny thing. But anyway, for those of us who are trying to make interesting stuff, it has its advantages. So I guess I shouldn't complain, but. Um. No, when it works in our favor for a sick yeah, release. That's yeah, that's right. When it works in our favor, we're in favor of Whitman it. it, Trentman, it yeah. on, on its face, it's a bit confusing. Um, it really is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. Sorry, I've been a bit um, difficult to track down. Just, uh, you know, the usual chaos over here, but um happy to be here doing this yeah me too i've been wanting to speak to you since your book came out so well here we are here we are a few short years later yeah i bought the uk edition and then i i preferred the american cover so i bought the american hardback me too and then i ruined that on holiday so (laughs) then so then i bought the paperback when i was in new york last because i wanted to revisit Amazing. So you've bought my book three times. This is yes. like, I really, okay. Thank you, sir. I have to ask, what did you do to ruin the hardcover? I was on the beach and mm. I got a bunch of sand in it and it got a little okay. bit wet. It was fine, but I have a thing. I, my, I'm all about the right edition of the book. Got it. And my Ali who works with me was over in Sundance and I sent her a text saying, you need to buy me the new copy of Brace and Alice for Shots. <laughs> and she was like, dude, I just saw on Instagram you were at the UK book signing yesterday. And I was like, this is not for chip kid Simon and I Schuster see. book cover. Please. I, I kind of felt like Miranda Priestley in Devil Wears Prada, where she's <laughs> telling her to go get the new Harry Potter book. That's uh, right. Before that's, you're exactly the same. When I <laughs> same first saw you, I thought you and Miranda, you know who this guy reminds me of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Immediate, immediate thought. Uh, you know, it's all about the paper. It's all about the book cover. I'm that way too. I definitely, I mean, I think anyone who's really sort of in this world to a certain extent has a fastidious collector mindset somewhere in there. Um, I really, I like, I have that too. I can be a little obsessive about editions and, you know, having the, having the right, the right copy of the right thing that means that it has this sort of like significance built into it because of its whatever particular time that it came out or the cover that that was done for that. Like I'm a sucker for all of that. So I feel you. Yeah, It's like when normal people like my girlfriend will say, it's the same words. Yeah. It's the same. I'm like, no, it's going to hit different. <laughs> yeah, that's totally missing the point. Well, yeah. it's also, it's about, it's about in our defense. I mean, basically, first of all, the caveat being that we're nuts. It is the same words, but that there's something about the way that you're, it's about, it's always about trying to preserve a certain way into something that you love. Like there's something about having the, 
I'll, I'll give you one for me. One of my great white whale eBay searches is the, um, I believe it's 1961. I have it set up. The 1961, uh oh, now I can't remember which year it is. I think it's 1961, but that seems a little early. Um, edition, like August issue of Vogue, which is where self-respect on self-respect by Joan Didion first ran, which was her first piece of journalism that was printed in Vogue. And there had, there's this whole story behind it, which probably, you know, many people know, but just that she, she had been assigned, they needed a certain number of words on self-respect. The piece had already been assigned and it was like laid out in the issue and somehow the writer fell through. And so they assigned her, they're like, Hey, new girl, like write 600 words on self-respect. And she did. And that became like this sort of, you know, very significant um, first piece of published journalism for her and what really an incredible piece of writing in general, still all these years later. And there is like, if you go to Vogue.com, they have that you can see it. You can see the original layout. They've, you know, archived, they've digitized all these archives. You're able to see all that stuff. But somehow I still just want, it's like, I could print that out. Like I could make, but I want the real thing. I want to see that, that issue of Vogue. I just, and it's not like the words are available everywhere. They're available in three different versions of that essay that I have in different forms in my house on bookshelves. They're available online. We could look, look them up right now, but there's something about the idea of being able to actually hold an, an issue that in which that originally appeared that feels like, and maybe it wouldn't, but feels like it would create or renew or somehow deepen or expand my relationship with that writing already. So it's not, I mean, maybe it wouldn't, but it feels like it would. Um, so, you know, maybe that, maybe that argument, or it's not really an argument, maybe that explanation merely doubles down on my craziness, but uh, that's just the type of person that I am. No, you're absolutely right. I have a stack of, eBay safe searches and alerts when stuff comes on sale. And yeah. I remember when I was in New York just before the pandemic, I was went to this place, Jerry Ollinger's movie memorabilia store, mm. which is it just has an archive of movie paraphernalia. Cool. Where's that? I've never even heard of that. It's in Brooklyn somewhere, but you got it's just yeah. like you buzz in, you go upstairs, and it's like a little office with two <laughs> crank cranky New York guys running it, but they, 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 you come in there to say, what are you into? What do you want to see? Obviously, you don't have to buy anything, but we'll just pull some stuff out. and you Ooh, can... So they're like curators of your crazy brain. Yeah. And they just say it's a lot easier if you tell us what you're into because we've got like thousands I should thousands call. Of... Maybe they can find my Vogue for me. They're amazing. Seriously. I said to them I wanted, um, I said, you probably don't have it, but I need Peter Bogdanovich's Veil Laughed poster. <laughs> and they were like, well, that was so... Like, no, they were like it's self-released. We don't know if they have we 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 have it. We go out back, and I was kind of like, "All right, I'll buy a ton of this other shit anyway, and make me feel better about myself." And then I just said, "Like, got one!" Oh my god! I almost cried. I almost cried. It was the most exciting, geeky moment for me. What is this place called? Jerry Ollinger's movie memorabilia. Okay. Coolest guys. Get in my. I will not. I, what if I was just like, okay, it's been great talking to you and just hung up. <laughs> yeah, I, I got better. I got something to do with my day now. Thank you. So thank you so much. It's been a yeah. real pleasure. Thanks for buying three copies of my book. Bye. I have to go lose the rest of my afternoon in this. Okay, no, it's but been great. I've now yeah. written it down, so I'll be able to go and look. I can't believe I don't know about this place. Thanks for the, I mean, thank you. And also, 
Uh oh. RIP two hundred dollars yep. minimum. Yeah. <laughs> so I always ask my guests, what kind of teenager were you? What kind of movies and? Oh, that's such a good question. Ooh, I might steal that for future interviews. Um, what kind of teenager was I? It's a little embarrassing because I think the the sort of paradigm for someone who then goes and does what I've gone and done to some extent is like, you're supposed to say you were like a miserable kind of misanthropic loser. And that's the cool version of this. I wasn't, I wasn't that I was, I mean, maybe inside, like I always, whenever I think about this or write about sort of the Island of misfit toys, nature of New York city, as a concept and certainly as a reality for me and my friends during the period that meet me in the bathroom covers, especially the early years. Like I definitely felt that way. I definitely felt, Oh, I found my people. Oh, my people aren't where I came from to they are, but they aren't like, I'm just, I'm that restlessness, that sense of like not fitting in, but it was kind of interior. Like I didn't, you know, I was like a chubby nerd in middle school, but by high school, like most, I mean, early high school is one thing, but like I had friends, you know, like, um, I had like, you know, I always think that I, my, I have these hilarious photos of me and my, one of my best friends at prom with like boys who were one year older, you know, like that's what, (laughs) what more sign of relative coolness is there in high school? um upperclassmen uh knew my name so it wasn't I was I didn't have that kind of like and I wasn't cool in that way I didn't have um sort of the the I didn't have the kind of taste um what would you call it like palate that you're supposed to have to then become a rock journalist and I in a weird way I think my insecurity about that my insecurity about being what we would now call basic, you know, was sort of part of part of the part of the weirdness that ended up bonding me to a lot of these. That was weird. Like I felt weird about that. I was like, what if I'm, cause I'm from New Mexico. I wasn't from a cool, like all the kids who grew up in New Jersey, right across the river, river from New York or various Eastern places, or of course, California has its own lore like I you know there were no bands that came to play here there were no there was like one little record store but it really I didn't have that kind of upbringing where it was like that kind of adolescence where it was like there's this weird guy at a record store there's this club that we used to sneak into it's like it's Albuquerque New Mexico like my first show was Bush with Goo Goo Dolls and No Doubt opening and they played at Tingley Coliseum which is where the rodeo happens you know it's like the state fairgrounds like this is not So in a way, like all of that, all of the stuff that became a part of my life existed in this other realm that was not accessible from where I actually was. And I know that's a common theme for a lot of like suburban kids, but it seemed extra extreme, I think, being from Albuquerque and also being like, like I just said, rejected internally, but not externally. Yeah. (laughs) It was sort of like... (laughs) I was like, when do I get to be a rebel? I'm getting good grades and my parents are pretty nice and I have friends like, but wait, where's the part where I get to turn into Daria? Like someone help me out here. So that that's the kind of teenager that I was. So how are you discovering music? I had a cool older brother, which was my gateway oh, to God. See if only, but I should say when I was talking to the older kids at school, 
I had this thing when my brother was really into like grunge, shoegaze, weirdly really liked Harry Connick Jr. as well. (laughs) So I remember I was talking to these older kids and I was like, hey, how's that new Sonic Youth LP? And they're like, great. And I'm like, Jesus and Mary Chain? Like, fuck yeah. And I'm like, the Harry Connick Jr. when Harry Met Sally soundtrack? Beautiful. (laughs) And they were like, are you fucking with us? And I was like, no, no. And the When We're In Love album? Stunning. (laughs) And I did not know this was not... Right. To you, it was, hey, listen, I'm getting this all from one source, and this is what that source is into. I assume if you like First and More, you, you, you like the smooth jazz of Harry. Have you ever asked Thurston Moore how he feels about Harry Connick Jr.? Because I would like to know the answer to that. I will. No, I know him a little bit. I can totally ask him that. You should get to, yeah, because I think he, I, that story is really funny. So when I was growing up, my my dad had a, um, my dad is a big, both my parents, but really my dad in particular is a kind of music head and of a certain type. And when we were, so he would play, he had a folk music show on the local, like, it's a, I guess it's the, it's public radio, but it's also like university affiliated, KUNM in Albuquerque. He would do this folk music radio show. And that, that's, that's kind of his, that at least at that time was sort of the center of his taste. And that's not really my thing, but he did play like, you know, we, in our household, you heard a lot of Bob Dylan. You heard a lot of some Rolling Stones. You heard a lot of Beatles. You heard a lot of like, I mean, cream, we heard my, my dad had been in England in the mid sixties, mid to late sixties for school. And so this kind of, there was like an interesting, I really remember hearing fresh cream as a kid and I'm trying to remember like Richard and Linda Thompson, like some, Mm -hmm. some cool stuff, but then hilariously, this is what this reminds me of. He also played the talking heads so when I was growing up, like I thought that basically early Alison Krauss, 90s Dylan, um, Cream and the Talking Heads were all, like you're saying, like of the same ilk. Like this is all, this is what this, this is all some similar type of music. So, I mean, none of the other stuff that's not, no CBGB's bands, nothing else from the sort of like New York era that the talking heads are associated with ever filtered into our family. So I've asked him later, I'm like, how did that happen? And it really is somehow it started with stop making sense. And then he worked his way back from that and got into the talking. It's like this, it's just when you're exposed to somebody else's taste like that, like you're saying, you get some mixed messages about like the order of operations here. I went to a Harry Connick Jr. show at the Royal Albert Hall wearing a Depeche Mode Songs of Faith and Devotion shirt. Oh, no. Probably everyone else was just like, is that a movie? Like, I mean, who, you know, there would sort of be no context. It's it's not like you would get beaten up, I would imagine. Maybe you would. But mostly I would think it would just, there's all, so little crossover that no one else would even know what, you were, what that shirt meant. Um, yeah. And they like, there was a weird thing we didn't know because I was like 13, 14. Could I be let in? And they like snuck me in. And then I had a beer in the bar. So my friend Jillian, who I was just mentioning uh, in passing, Jillian was cool. And um, it still is very cool. And I don't know, did interesting, wild things that she wasn't allowed to be doing and didn't care if anyone caught her. Whereas I did all those things, but I didn't want to get caught. She had a cool older brother and Jeremy and Jeremy 
I remember vividly Jillian, I didn't really get the full effect of the cool older brother, but I remember he was, Jeremy was really into all the music that would end up kind of shaping my life. Although I didn't really discover these bands until college, but he was into The Cure and Depeche Mode and probably Jesus and Mary Chain and all those. And he, but he had a copy of Disintegration. Jillian had a tape. I, I can see the cassette and she handed it to me one day and she was like, Jeremy and I are not sure if you're ready for this, but here you go, you know, try it out. And I was like, very reverential. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I I'll do my best, you know, to, uh, to, to show up for this. And I put it in my 1983 Volvo DL station wagon, um, cassette player and drove around playing it in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I mean, so there was stuff that snuck in. I had another friend in high school who was just, I don't know where he was just ready for stuff. He was into Bjork and like some of the big bands like PJ Harvey artists who were certainly not obscure in any way and of the era, not of like a slightly previous era. But I remember listening to Bjork when I was like 14 or 15 and just being like, I don't know, like it just didn't happen. I loved this is what I was listening to in high school. I was listening to Pearl Jam. I was listening to Nirvana. I was listening to Tori Amos. I was listening to No Doubt. And I was listening to a lot of old music, like, like 60s old music. Um, Joni Mitchell, Dylan, um, Neil Young, kind of paragons of what I guess at that point was already classic rock and this dat parent music. But yeah. it just that it just was easier somehow to get it. I didn't put put the two and two together that somehow there would be contemporary versions of music that was mm-hmm. that meaningful. Just again, it all just felt like part of this other world that you got to kind of like look up and study. But I remember being going to um, the library in high school and printing out all the backlog of articles that I could find on things Eddie Vedder had said over time and then putting them in a folder like for school and, you know, reading them and highlighting them. It's just like the ultimate nerdy Yeah, I did that with Smashing Pumpkins. That was one of my... Smashing Pumpkins were huge for me. Loved Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. Just felt you could find out what, like something about some information about how to be alive from these people, like that was going to be in there somewhere. Um, Billy Corgan would know and tell you. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. All he'd reference was Finn Lizzy. And then (laughs) I bought like the Finn Lizzy best of and was like, I can't put the dots together. What the fuck You're is like, this? Dude, what are you talking about? Am I getting the wrong album? And then I try <laughs> and I'm like, no, this still is not my vibe. And then later on, you can kind of like, all right, well, no, there's loads of shoegaze in here. These are the connections. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, just so strange. Probably my favorite band ever is the Pixies. And I think I got to the Pixies from reading about Nirvana. Um, and I think... Yeah, this sort of idea, this, the, yeah, you don't know, Thin Lizzy, you don't always get where you're supposed to get next, but there is this way in which, like, I definitely felt like I was a big garbage fan. I really worshipped Shirley Manson. I thought she was amazing, and she is. Um, there was, it was sort of like, I felt like those people were sort of like Greek myth characters, like these individuals who who live in some sort of, literally fantastical alternate reality and 
I keep thinking of like the notion of Mount Olympus and the Greek myths, like they're all there together and they're mm-hmm. hanging out and they're, and they're here to kind of, again, in a sort of almost religious way, they're like, I remember reading this Q, I can picture it, like reading this Q and A with Shirley Manson and Rolling Stone and just feeling sort of do like, I'm going to follow all of her instructions. She's saying, do this, do that as a woman, do that. It's like, great. Okay. Here's my messaging. This is it. But the idea that that person was real seemed insane. And later, I mean, it was really a beautiful way to exist with music. I think we, uh, you're describing a similar feeling. It's like, you get to have the freedom and the purity of a kind of lack of reality relationship with all of this sound and the people who make it. And it's very cool. And then, but what I was going to say is that later when I was in New York and all these bands that became part of the meet me in the bathroom world, um, or the meet me in the bathroom world was happening. Um, what was wild was just the moment. I mean, really the moment that I had the idea to even write the book was, when I was at um, Madison Square Garden seeing the then final LCD sound system show, which of course did not turn out to be final, but was at the time. And the Strokes who had played MSG in that same couple, like that same week um, in April of 2011. And it was only then in that moment where I was sort of like, oh, even though of course you know that those bands are successful, it was like, for whatever reason, there was something about that venue and the and how good those shows were just how grown up everybody seemed or it was like oh shit i think it's possible that these bands are like nirvana i mean not like that they of course whatever record sales blah, 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 but sort of in terms of generational significance or having whatever role they were playing for the culture in that particular moment and have gone on to play it's like it occurred to me that that gap just narrowed. Like these people that used to feel really far away for you, me as a kid are, that's who these people are for this era. And that just, that was kind of sobering in a weird way. (laughs) Sort of just not sad, but like, yeah, humbling, a bit humbling. Um, And then I thought, you know, I got to figure out how to, there's, I need to understand this better, which is usually how, some project that takes seven years becomes takes over your life. You're like, let me understand this better. I'll do some writing around it. Famous last words. Um. <laughs> I remember when, when you were saying about being obsessed with Shelley Manson, I had to confess. And when I, we were introducing me in the bathroom on Friday, that on the way there, I was listening to loads of strokes and Interpol. And I was going through my Facebook photos and I was so fucking obsessed with Paul Banks it was (laughs) another level of Stan Mm. and I think this is when you're going through your 20s and trying on different personalities and looks this was my final (laughs) time in the dressing room where I was I had the ill-fitting painful American (laughs) apparel brogues I had I had this the suit I had, I splashed out obs- stupid money on vin- on a vintage Armani tie. And <laughs> I was at this, and I'd even have a badge that says Interpol, like a name tag, just in case you don't know just what I'm trying so to be. So I am referencing, like, let's not let yeah. this be subtle. Yeah. You know, like, hello, my name is <laughs> like Interpol <laughs> wannabe in London. And I was in... 
I was in Camden and mm-hmm. Paul Banks left and my friend's like, that's fucking Paul Banks. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. And I went up and I was like, Paul, on, on the last track on Tell on the Bright Lights, do you sing Pony or Phony? <laughs> and he was like, Pony. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. And he's like, what? And I was like, I'm going to be at the show and I'll see you. Well, not in the sense that we'll meet that I'll be in the crowd at w- <laughs> watching. And then I'm thinking, oh my God, I sound like Mark fucking David Chapman right here. Like mental note, extra security for the ICA show tomorrow. <laughs> and, and and then I was like, all right, cool. See ya. And he was very sweet. And I think he could totally understand this is an awkward as fuck overexcited fan who's yeah just ruining this yeah and then i'm like walking away and i'm limping away because i'm wearing the american apparel brogues which <laughs> i had to no no like i had to stop wearing because i, I remember i had these yellow socks because i liked i you know i'd have to pop with a weird sock and well, my friend my, my friend was like cool socks why have they got a little bit of red and orange in them and i was like oh no 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 my shoes are just filling up with blood because the 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 ankle bit had this like you know the big metal rod no lucinda lucinda's upset by this story understandably i'm sorry it's over soon hold on let me let her out sorry go on i'm a very professional podcast guest no that's totally fine um, but yeah, my shoes were literally filling up with blood from the, the ankle was just hacking. The ankle bar was just hacking away at me. Let's just give you some points, though, for your commitment to your look. I mean, you. you know, it's usually women who are suffering for style. But I think it's you in a weird way. What you're doing is a kind of egalitarian effort <laughs> on your part um, to even the playing field. And listen, looking like <laughs> it's just so funny. What I was going to say is attempting to look like Interpol is not, is a worthy pursuit. You know, they're, these are good looking men who. I know, but they're skinny and they pop. Yeah. I think it's, it it was definitely at that point where I can't, you kind of had to take the harsh lesson and bitter pill that (laughs) you can get close similar to them, but it's not going to like, I was always dad bod and I was like fucking sweating wearing these goddamn free fucking layers of, of an outfit. And right, the sweater, <laughs> the V-neck sweater with the blazer and the, the blazer of a tie. Like so much. So much commitment to the bit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was like, it's the same when I, I, I have the same energy when I see, um, I met Warren Ellis a few times and he's always so impeccably oh dressed. He is so well turned out. Totally. Such a zaddy. And I'm like, I was, I say to him like, dude, do you ever just wear a fucking tracksuit? <laughs> and he was like, no, just, I may, <laughs> maybe like a little Lovely. Lacoste polo, but no, it's the pointy fucking shoes, the, the, <laughs> the, the Gucci flares and the, you know, the bespoke shirt and stuff. And there's a thing about a uniform that's real. I've never, you know what, honestly, this is a very triggering conversation for me because um, I, I feel, I just feel this. Like I I've always wanted, I'm at my best. And where I'm going with this is that I think we all are, are attracted to this idea, whether we can achieve it or not. But at various points in my life, I have had moments where it's like a look emerges that just feels right. 
like a yeah. thing. And it's yeah. not, it, you know, whatever. Great. Warren Ellis, Paul, like there's a million examples of this from music generally and just artists in general who are, you're identifying people with great looks. Fine. But like, you can do that for yourself. It might not be their look. It's like, it's all, it's this sort of this sense of individual style, but also just like the right, the right look, the right representation, like physical object that the piece of clothing that represents that look at the right time. Sometimes when you get it right, all this stuff that seems ridiculous when we talk about it, like in your story, it's like, wouldn't it be awesome if I could just dress like Paul Banks all the time or somebody from Interpol or whatever? It's like, the answer is yes, it would, because something you're being drawn to there is not just like, hey, this guy looks great. It's about the sense of inhabiting your body and your, your, like, your look in the world in a way that's like quite satisfying when it actually happens. Like it is as good to be Warren as you think it is. I feel like (laughs) I just don't, I can't always get there. You know, I just can't, I can't always get there. Sometimes it's just off. You need to, you know, you need to know when to stop. Yeah. It's funny. My, my girlfriend has, I call it the face where if we're like Uh. in a shop and I'm like, I'm going to try this and like, what do you think? And she's like, "Mm." that's, you know, you, you're not pulling off. Like I love you and and, and yeah. she's giving me the best tough love, but that's just not popping. But you need that. This is what we need from among other things. This is what we need from our significant others is frank honesty about these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's turn off the lights, not turn on the bright lights for this. Look. <laughs> just put it by. But what, what was so great from reading your book and the documentary is these people who I honestly thought were the, coolest fucking people on earth yeah we're just anxious depressed um introverted dorky awkward hashtag relatable content it was so great to (laughs) (laughs) yeah and obviously as you get as i get to know as as i've got to know like musicians and filmmakers and, and amazing people that you just realize that they're just like odd folks just like all of us stars they're just like us right yeah Yeah. totally i mean i think the the that is the through line and if you interview people a lot as you do there's like that's the coolest people you know the people who you worship they all have um they are like you i mean i think my exception to this is always Beyonce. I'm like, I don't think Beyonce is like the rest of us. I think she's probably the one exception, but like, I mean, I've never met Beyonce, so I can't say for sure. Maybe. And of course that's a joke. Like she has part of her powers, her vulnerability and stuff. But I think, I mean, the big lesson in talking to musicians and artists and actors and whatever, over all these years that I've been doing it, meet me in the bathroom is included in that, but just in my journalism career is that it's just like you, it's very, what makes the people who make the stuff you love special is talent for sure. And whatever their, their unique approach to the world is approach to their art is, but it's also like the resilience and the kind of doggedness in the face of the same insecurities that we all deal with. Like one of the things that I really wanted to capture and meet me in the bathroom was just this common theme for, if you think of the four main bands as LCD, yeah, yeah, as Strokes and Interpol, like that's the sort of center um, 
first graduating class of the meet me in the bathroom <laughs> world. It's even though timeline wise, you know, it's not quite right. Cause LCD is later, but those are kind of the big, big um, centers of orbit for the story. They, the thing they all had in common is this sense of in their, in totally different ways, honestly, in each case, this sense of feeling like there's something they're supposed to be saying and doing and making, however you want to articulate that, something that belongs to them, each as individuals in those bands and then collectively. And that the pain of not figuring out how to get it said overrides everything else. And that there's that that hunger and that sort of I mean, and for James, it meant one thing. It mean, I mean, for in ways that are very obvious, if you know this story, like how that looked for James Murphy, who's older and had already spent quite a few years like failing, as he would sort of put it, is one look. And then how it would look for the strokes is one look. And how it would look for Karen is one look. And Nick, who'd been in bands before too, and then finds the singer that he has this like great musical chemistry with and all that. And then Interpol is the example I always go to because I actually think Daniel... Kessler says this best articulate something that's true for all these people and true for so many of us. Like this is what's inspiring about it. When he talks about like the period of time in Interpol's formation before Interpol really formed where Daniel is like recruiting all these, he's like in class with Carlos D and he sees what Carlos is wearing. And he's like, I gotta like be in, I gotta track that guy down and get him in my band. And Carlos is basically like, no, like I'm not doing music anymore. I'm doing whatever film or philosophy or whatever he says he's doing at the time, all things that he was doing. And he's very interested in. And then he goes to Paul and Paul's like, no, I'm in a solo thing. Like, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't need to be in a band. I want to write and perform my own songs. And he's at sidewalk cafe most nights, like doing his stuff, which you see in the film. And Daniel who describes himself as like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but like a shy person. Daniel's not some like <laughs> hustling go-getter guy mm. who's like, whatever, fuck you guys. I know it. You're he's not Madonna. He's not like let me, he's not a sort of operator in that way. He's not gonna go track these people down. But what he says is, but he does do that. And what he says is a version of, again, paraphrasing, like, I just had this awareness that if I didn't do this, I was gonna be unhappy for the rest of my life. Like if I didn't figure, there's just this thing and it's in there and I have to, I can't quite see how it's supposed to manifest or how it's gonna, how the pieces are gonna come together. I don't see it yet, but I know that if I do not figure out how to, in his case, form this band and get these songs played the way that I just know they're like, they're in there and they're supposed to be played and I have to find the right players. Like I've got to find the right collaborators. Like the will to do that pushed him into a place that where he did a bunch of things that are, he's that are totally uncharacteristic for him. Mm -hmm. And I think that that articulation of it is something that like a version of that happened with all of those other artists. And I think to your point, you know, you don't think of whatever, in this case, we were talking about Paul, like somebody who has this kind of Arctic imperious coolness by mm -hmm. nature as sitting there in some world being like, nervous about whether other people will like their songs or worried that, you know, they're going to have, I'm now speaking more generally here, but like, 
yeah, that some guy I'm thinking about other band stories and they're kind of, but that, that some, some competing band who's playing ahead of them on the Mercury lounge bill that night is going to like steal their thunder. Like, it's just not, it seems so far fetched once we know about these artists and hear this music that that would ever be possible, but that's how it was. I mean, there, it's really, it's how it was for each of these people. And I think in music journalism, generally there's a disservice done sometimes in how we tell these stories it's all about these sort of moments of ascension and like when did you find the sound that would change and all that is important but most of these stories are about suffering in obscurity and confusion and and states of self-doubt for fucking years if you're interval yeah <laughs> before anyone cares you know and I think that's the most inspiring for me part of this story is that this is all people who came to a city that everyone was told was over creatively at a time when everyone was told guitar music and music like this music that had like sexuality and sort of primal energy to it was just like not what we were doing anymore. And all these people were just like, okay, but I have to, <laughs> like I yeah. have to. And that's, it's a, it's a lesson in, I don't know what self, it's a lesson in ignoring your own, it, it's a lesson in accepting, but, it, but also doing it anyway, in terms of accepting your own sense of doubt, but operating to spite it. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a great streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover. With Mubi, every film is handpicked. And with that said, I want to give you three of my favorites from the Mubi UK catalog. Oh, I love this movie. Mustang from Turkey. 2015 about a group of sisters living together and when one of them has an arranged marriage set up they begin to rebel stunning movie and an incredible score by the great warren ellis who you may know from the dirty free or his work with nick cave that's number one. Oh. They've got the Peter Strickland movies. Okay, confession. I interviewed Peter Strickland for the podcast, and it's the only podcast, Touchwood, where my podcast equipment failed. It was my first time using portable pod equipment. And let's just say the I may have pressed the wrong button. That wasn't the record button. So I'm paying it back. I'm going to give shout-outs to Peter Strickland on all his movies for the next episodes number one the duke of burgundy what a beautiful movie what a beautiful weird movie it's so hard to pitch it's kind of just beautiful and nightmarish a sadomasochistic fantasy if that doesn't sell it nothing will there we go and number three my pick is holy spider by ali abassi I saw this at the film festival last year, London Film Festival that is, and it was fantastic. 
And it's the true story of a serial killer in Iran who was killing prostitutes and a journalist who helped bring him to justice. But it's not that simple. I urge you to check that out. And you can watch all of these for free if you go to movie.com slash deeper into movies for 30 days free of awesome movies. Movie.com slash deeper into movies. Before I started Deeper Into Movies, when I was freelance writing, I did two oral histories, one for the show Top Boy and then a more ambitious one for the show Black Mirror. And they were so stressful. Why? I, I, I need to win. And I, anytime I read an oral history or something, I, I dig in and say it's the oral history of Seinfeld. Mm. And then I'm like, Nah, you didn't get Larry David. This isn't an oral history, you know. I've seen you trying to pad it out with with Norman or whatever, but I'm very judgy as to who who is. It, it speaks more as to who isn't included sometimes. Yeah, you see so, the gaps. Yeah, yeah. So I was going psycho and just on IMDb Pro, and it, it turned out really well. And I, I I'm sure you found the same that once I said. Charlie Brooke is included, John Hamm's included, Rashida Jones. Totally. They're like, oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. How long do you need again? And I'm like, uh, not, 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 now we're talking publicist. But right, exactly. I, I was wondering, how did you start reaching out to people who wasn't interested? And how did you begin to persuade people that this is worth their time and things like that? Totally. Um, well, almost exactly as you just said. You know, I think... The, the, I mean, I had the advantage of just a lot of time. Like I didn't, I mean, it took, the book took two to three times as long as I had told my publisher it would take to write. So it's like, I, in a way I didn't have a lot of time because I was stressed the entire time. It's not like I said, oh, this will take six years to report and come out. Like that is not the plan. And I don't recommend that. It took too long, but, um, as a factor, like by virtue of the fact that it just was taking that long, like the reality was that I ended up having a lot of time. So I was able to kind of people who said no initially in exactly the way you just described came back around when other friends or whatever were or colleagues or enemies or <laughs> whatever they got motivated to speak once that you sort of get this critical mass of voices that matter to the story and the participants in it recognize that critical mass or they recognize enough names in it that that's sort of like, well, wait, it goes from a fear of, of being included in something to a fear of not being included in something. Um, so that's like one answer. Um, but I think really what happened at the beginning, and this is the part I like to celebrate because it's like, these are the people who helped me before there was any fear, <laughs> you know, yeah, not out of, yeah. 
under duress, but because, because they believed in the project and were willing to give me a shot, which is like, it's, I mean, Ryan Gentles, the strokes manager and my dear old friend, Imran Ahmed from, well, Brit, from NME, from a, a, a bunch of different places from Excel at various points, he now runs his own label um, and is based in LA and is doing super well. But Imran was like, so super crucial for helping me connect all these people are in the book, but for just being supportive behind the scenes and helping me make connections when I needed connections and vouching for me and so on. And Paul, Paul is a big part of this too. Like Paul and Albert Hammond Jr. are the two people that I probably, and maybe Karen are the, those are people that I interviewed a lot. Like every time I tried not to be annoying, but like Paul and Albert let me come back, you know, Mm-hmm. a second time, a third time, um, and really showed up for those interviews, like in a way that's not <laughs> a lot of these people depends on who we're talking about, but a lot of these people are not giant fans of talking to journalists. It's not like mm-hmm. number one on your list of things you want to do and they can be kind of wary. And I really appreciated the sort of earnestness of just like trusting me and trusting the project and, and respecting how much work I was putting into it. Like, when it's been a year and then another year and you're asking for more and, Hey, can you hook me up with this person? Because I really just want to track down this one detail in exactly the obsessive way you're describing, like oral histories can be like spackling. you have this sort of basic outline and even all this great stuff maybe, and you've gathered all that, but then it's like, I really, this person should really be checked in with. And I have no idea how to contact them because they're slipped through the cracks and are they even in this world anymore? I mean, that's how New York is, right? All these stories are like that. So that those are all the people that come to mind. Like, yes, on the one hand, it was like there was a, a natural order of people are saying no or nah. And then, you know, it's kind of a soft no. If you come back to them with three people they lived with in 2000, like mm-hmm. they're going to talk to you. The other thing I also did, which I have talked about to other oral history writers who are journalists, because I think this is goes against our instincts as, as reporters. I mean, I'm not really a traditional reporter, but the rules that I would use for writing a feature or for reporting out a story for New York magazine or the times or whatever is different from this. Like I told sources, you, I just need your voice. Like if you, you would hear, I don't want to talk about 2001 anymore. Like I'm over that. Okay. Can you tell me what your first relationship with New York city was like, what was the myth of New York to you? Why did New York matter to you? Your question about what kind of a teenager you are is a great one. I think the journalistic integrity behind this is strong. The oral history point for me, for this book was like, I just want everyone to be represented who belongs to this story. If they want to be like, you don't, there's of course, for me, there's like people I really need. And I did go after those people. And I would say, you know, you can tell me about your childhood and nothing about the, your role in this band, but I am also going to tell you three different things your bandmate said, just so that you know, like what's coming out here and you have a chance to comment on those things. But unlike in a piece of real magazine journalism, where I would say you kind of do need to like, I would feel more of an obligation to make that person, if they're going to participate, show up for the full extent of their involvement in the story. I didn't feel that way about this. It's just sort of like, this really is a communal thing. And if you don't want to talk about 
whatever, so-and-so's drug addiction or even, honestly, most of the things people didn't want to talk about weren't even like ostensibly sexy, salacious subjects like that. It was just like, I can't talk about making that EP again. Like I just can't. It's like, okay, no problem. So I sort of left an open door in that way that I would not have done in a piece in magazine journalism. And of course, what ended up happening is then you get a lot more interesting stuff because then people are telling you what I hope comes across in the book and certainly is there in the movie, I think is like a kind of delicate emotional underbelly of how it actually felt to live through this period of time rather than like how we got this guitar sound, you know? So how long did the book take six or seven years? I wrote the proposal for a year basically yeah. and tried to get it sold. So it was seven years in total from the sort of conception of the idea to publication, but it was six years of writing. So one, what were you doing otherwise to support yourself? And two, did you ever get the fear someone's going to come out with a quicker, shittier book and <laughs> beat me to it? Or is the moment going to pass in a new, I don't know, is this going to be looked on in a different light? Did you ever totally. feel like it was going to get away from you? And I mean, so what's so funny is that, well, I'll answer the first question first. I mean, it ruined my life and financially it was really hard. And I was, I mean, I, I was writing, I wrote a lot of journalism. I was my whole journalism career. I started the book. I sold the book when I was like 31 years old (laughs) and I finished it when I was 37. I mean, the sort of extent of my career as a, as a print journalist which is sounds like a very antiquated term, but it coincided with the period of time that I was writing this book. So like I got my contract at L during the time I was writing this book, wrote a bunch of stuff for L. I started at New York magazine, like around the same time, a little before, but around like all the stuff I ever wrote for New York happened at the same time that I was writing this book. So that, and that's part of why it took so long. Like it was, I could not just do this. It was not feasible. Um, and so I had to kind of like fit it in to my broader creative endeavors and my, like the other writing that I was doing for money and for creative satisfaction, but it was, it was really hard. Um, and I wouldn't recommend it. And I'm hopefully I'm trying not to ever do that again. Although it's, it's hard, you know, like book writing is like a real mental war. Um, So that's the answer to that. In terms of like figuring out how to, I mean, I guess, well, okay. Ask the question again. So first it's like, how did I ask, ask me again so that I can. So yeah, I was just thinking when you're working on. I'll go on a tangent otherwise. Okay. And I was thinking when you're working on a super long project like this on a piece, even in movies, I've, I've, I've done where people have made a, there was the Joy Division Control movie. And yeah. then there was, in my opinion, the even better Joy Division documentary that the guy who made Mean People is Easy made, which came out and got completely ignored. Getting so, scooped, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was wondering, is maybe word gets out that there's a reinterest in the scene or? Right. This is a better way to answer that. I'm glad I asked you to repeat it because otherwise I get like two in my own weeds about it. Here's what's true. Nobody cared about this. So it wasn't, I was not worried. I, there was, when I first sold the book, I vividly remember going to Ryan's house, Ryan Gentles, who's the best and a a really old friend of mine. And 
and somebody I needed on my side immediately, obviously to get this done. Right. But so I went to his house and I was basically like, I was like, Ryan, I want to, you know, we had drinks on his roof and I was like, Hey, so I sold this book and I'm going to write this book. And he was like, really? And he was, I was of course concerned that it's going to be like, everyone's going to be against it. And they're not going to want, I mean, I said, it's please kill me for our era, which is what Mm -hmm. it is. And everybody in this world worships, please kill me as they should. And he, but his attitude wasn't like, oh my God, like spilling secrets. No, no, no. His attitude was like, is anyone going to fucking care? Like what? We're not, please kill me. Like, please kill me. Please. Are you kidding? Like the attitude was very, and this is not, this is the opposite of a diss to Ryan. This is like, I, I encountered that a lot. Like most of the people who I first contacted, like very first interviews was like, I mean, sure. Like I'm, they were humoring me. It felt like that. It was sort of like, Lizzie, you know, I knew a lot of these people. It's like, okay, yeah. I mean, well, you're, you're sort of pet project about this book you're going to write about mm-hmm. our, our time in New York. Like, of course I'll like, you know, let you meet me at the bar on Sunday afternoon and talk for an hour about whatever, but like, okay. You know, just the idea that somebody would scoop me for years was the opposite of how this felt because nobody seemed to understand, including, and especially the people who were key participants in this scene, that there was anything to scoop. Um, and I think part of the virtue of that is something you got at in your question, which is really about timing. Like I did not worry that it was going to be too late because I actually think I was a bit early. So I sold the book in 2011 or 2012, um, had the idea in 2011. And that's really right on the end of the period of time that it covers. Like this mm-hmm. whole, I, I, in a way, I think, and this is something Will and Dylan and I talked about a lot it, uh, in the course of them proposing to me this documentary and then in the course of them making it, which is that we, you know, we all really, one of the things the film and the book has in common, I think, is a goal to sort of help us understand is a goal is is the way in which we both will will and dylan as one sort of creative arm and me as the writer of this book see this period of time as an almost (laughs) like living history of where we are now like it's like this is how we got here this period of time is when all the stuff changed that made the reality we're now living in um that we're still just beginning to understand technological revolution generational identity all these sort of like high concept frames that get thrown around like all that stuff is really important to the meet me in the bathroom story and this is the like origin point for it like the stem cell time for everything we're living through now so when the book came out in 2017 it was like basically oh this is right when people start to are starting to just recognize that this might have been an interesting period of time that we documented this way so i got lucky accidentally in that way um but now, you know, now that I think about it, I should have been more concerned, but I just was too busy being stressed about the writing of the book to worry that, well, although final thing I'll say about that, my friend and ex-boyfriend, Mark Spitz, to whom the book is dedicated, used to say to me when I was super stressed out about it, he would be, I would be like whining about blah, 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 how broke I was and how nobody, you know, so-and-so wouldn't talk to me or whatever. And I would, he would just look at me and he would occasionally go, I want you to pretend that one of the guys that you worked with at Rolling Stone who were mean to you is has now decided he's writing this book 
And now I want you to get go figure out how you would feel about that and operate from that place for the next day's work. And of course, whenever he sort of framed it that way, I would be like, new, I'd just be like, I'll fucking kill him. You know, just like this total sense of possession and self-possession and, you know, from who knows where it comes, like power and motivation, like <laughs> the fear of being done in by one of your nemeses is like pretty powerful. So he would sort of use that against me occasionally to help motivate me, but I never really had that feeling. I knew Mark, Mark a little bit. We used to email. Really? No way. The last time I spoke to him was to tell him to watch the Nick Cave documentary. Really? And, yeah. And he said, how did you guys get in touch initially? Instagram. I think he was, <laughs> he was, work i think he from what i gleamed he was always yeah, he vague was writing about a book about film about musicals or music and movies he called it it's actually funny i've never told anyone this this is like so it's called rock pictures he wrote a book that is as of yet unpublished um about music movies that he considered rock and roll which is of course in this case a descriptor rather than like music movies about rock and roll um yeah and uh that makes sense actually that he would you guys would have found your way to each other in that context yeah i was like his dog photos and all his videos of well, all his photos of his vhs collection and <laughs> m- m- movie books and stuff and i'm like ultimate nerd the yeah ultimate like hey i can't nerd. what's the one on the fourth shelf to the right in the green <laughs> font and he's like oh you got to check this out and that's awesome. That makes me really happy to hear. Funny you touched on the revenge theory. Yeah. Oh, I've sure. got, ridiculously, I've got to do a a mentorship class at the VNA Museum on Saturday talking about how I started showing movies. Cool. And one of the things I was unsure of putting in is that I start my friend used to run a night showing movies on VHS in East London. And I was like, that's the coolest fucking job in the world. <laughs> Seriously. Then I took over and they fucking hated me in the bar. They were really, it was the end of the kind of um, indie rave scene. And they were the old guys on the block who still thought they were really cool. And yeah. we, just, we just didn't get along. And they were, they were all like, they, I mean, the guys behind the bar had like Brazzers t-shirts and stuff and like <laughs> Pornhub and stuff. And I was like, oh, ah, God. yeah, 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 yeah. All the, all painfully single and just moody and doing bad coke and stuff. And mm. I'd come in there showing movies. We all know and these it, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And I came in and said w- one week and I said, how about the best movies you've not seen? And we'll show Michael Galinsky's half cocked Scorsese's after hours. They all laughed and one more. And they were like, you're fired. What? I was, like, I was like, this is sick. And then I was like, okay. So I left. And honestly, I was, I was being paid. Why did they fire you? I took it too seriously. I was on some MoMA level criterion creation. And then when I left the first movie they showed was Predator 2. So (laughs) it it just says it all. You just weren't with your people. And they were. Yeah. And and then I went to Moth Club down the road, which is like the coolest. It's, I picture it as if Twin Peaks was a working men's club in London. Oh my this God. is what this oh. venue venue looks like. And I, I, I went there and I showed Half Cocked and Ian Savanius did an intro for me and had this whole crazy video saying, 
the film Amazing. is black and the film is black and white because the film got old and the <laughs> color fell off and, and peak ian intro and then the next week i showed fugazi instrument and jem cohen was in town and we recorded an intro and he just said please support your independent cinemas and art spaces if you don't they will go away and i was like mission statement right here mm. But it was all just on revenge. And I got an email from the boss like, what the fuck is this Monday movie nights? And I was like, You're like Dude. oh, is that, the, is that the same night as yours? Oh, didn't know. Sorry. It's very motivating to be told no. I think, um, I think, I mean, there's a way to go with this too that has to, there's just, it's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that kind of derision for everybody who's moving, moving through these sort of like very gatekeeper-y cultural uh, spaces, but also it's worth pointing out, you know, especially for women, especially for, and anybody who's doesn't look like in whatever way you're supposed to look like the, the, the sort of subculture you're entering. And when I started in the music business, there was just a lot I mean, it's just like the number of times you're just often, you're just the only female person there. And especially at that time, there's nobody who's not white. And there's just, it's just very, white, very male, very, here are the bands that you're supposed to like. And that was tough. And I think one of the things that's motivating about it, exactly as you're saying, is like, the, in this case, that we're in this area, I'm not applying this specifically to one gender or another, because it happens to everyone. I mean, being told no is the great motivator for the found. I mean, revenge is the motivation of LCD sound system. James says this in the book. He's like, Hey, I wanted the rapture to be my rock stars. I wanted Luke to be my proxy rock star. And that's what we were going to do. And I had Tim on my side and we had formed DFA and like the rapture, we're going to be my rock stars. And then, you know, this is all reported out, but like, then they bailed on me and sort of screwed me over. And so I was like, fuck you. Now I'm going to start my own band. And like, that's how LCD sound system starts. So revenge is a <laughs> universal motivator for everyone. But I think that feeling of being to use the sort of like hyper therapized language of our time, like unseen being told that you're like, the the rejection just various shades of rejection even if it's by a dude in a porn up t-shirt <laughs> like you're you're still sort of like there's something profound that happens when you care about something and people tell you you're stupid in yeah. the face of that Absolutely. it's very animating um and i don't yeah don't turn into darth vader i like that just a quick side note don't turn into darth vader but a certain amount of Darth Vader is okay. Yeah, no, Just, I was kind of thinking you know, of like put, putting gas in the tank. Darth, you know? A, a little bit of diesel, but, and then the rest unleaded for, you know, not for yeah. the toxic layers. Wasn't there, a, I'm maybe fucking the story up, but wasn't the story that Walt Disney did a film or something fell apart and he was really depressed and started building a, a, a little tra train ride in his garden oh, i don't and know this one that's so he, great, he, he built he built a little ride in his garden because mm -hmm. he was so fucking depressed from his previous failure and that's wow. what sparked disneyland uh, <laughs> next thing you know yeah yeah that's awesome I, I love these stories i actually i was making a podcast for a while called difficult artist where i just wanted i just talked to people about this type of thing about like 
there, there were two stories that I had been told throughout the course of my like journalism life that stuck with me that fit this, that are about creative process in exactly mm-hmm. this way, like the value of failure. And I'll tell them both. They're short. The first is Jennifer Egan, the novelist, Jennifer Egan, who actually there's an amazing profile of her that just came out in the New Yorker that ha- in which she talks about some of this Jennifer Egan, who's written so many different, no- like, uh, I don't know how many novels she's written, but a handful of novels, each of which is like really different, like genre wise, just utterly, they're not, they have almost nothing in common in terms of she's style. She's Goon Squad, right? Is she's that- Goon Squad. Yeah. Welcome to the Goon Squad. And she just, the one that she put out this last year was the Candy House. And she, but she had also written, I interviewed her when she'd just written Manhattan Beach, which is a yes. like relatively straightforward historical romance novel. But, and so that's like what she did after Goon Squad. It's just like, and she's written like some gothic, um, like almost Daphne du Maurier-ish, like sort of pulp gothic stuff. She's amazing. And I'd interviewed her and she basically said, among other things, I was asking her about, I don't remember how we even got into this. I don't know if I even asked her directly about sort of different genres, but here are some of the things she told me. She told me that she writes by hand in like a porch near her house, like off her house. And she sometimes researches for years, talk about faith without really knowing what she's, why she's researching a particular subject. Like we were talking about Manhattan beach that has this sort of underwater diving in the era of world war II in it. She's like got interested in that and just followed that researched it for years, didn't do anything with it. And then just starts writing the story. She handwrites, 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 no outline doesn't read it back, does that for months. And I sort of was, I was freaking out as a writer, just going, wait, what? Like, this is making me so nervous. Just <laughs> hearing this is making me feel sick, like on your behalf. And she was laughing and whatever, we were talking about this. And the 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 quote, the pull quote to use the, I just almost said that, it shows you how deep it is, but is she said her central gift is her doggedness. It's this sense of, cause you know, this is an incredibly talented writer. She's got, mm-hmm. a, you're sort of like, no, your central gift is you're a genius, but she's yeah. like, no, I mean, that's not how it, she experiences it. What she experiences is a sense of unrelenting determination to get to whatever she can't see yet, but that is somehow in there. And then the other story briefly is a Trent Reznor story. So Trent, I'd interviewed him for something and he told me, that when David, he's always been interested in film. This is like, he was talking about the past. And when David Fincher first contacted him about doing the soundtrack for Social Network, he had not, he had not, or doing, yeah, yeah, like working on Social Network with him. He was like, he turned him down. He had just gotten off the road. He was exhausted and he didn't know how to do scores. Like really, he'd worked some on, like, but basically this was going to be the first big one. And he loves Fincher and he was as an artist, like really respected him. And he told me this story about like telling Fincher, no, being like, I can't, I'm too exhausted and I don't know how to do it. Basically. I don't know if he phrased it that way. I mean, he didn't phrase it that way, but he was basically like, I can't, but he couldn't, it, it ate at him that he had said no to this thing that like seemed like kind of an exciting challenge that he just, like, he sort of hated himself for not being able to show up for this project of trying to figure out how to do this. And I so relate to that. Like in the version of this, you want to say that you imagine Trent Reznor genius wins a million Oscars for all of his different scoring roles now. Right. You imagine that he like 
it's birds are singing and he feels and he's like, oh, I'm so inspired by this film about Facebook that you've brought to me. And yes, I suddenly have these ideas and let's get to work. And that's how you think somehow that somehow we tell ourselves that's how it's supposed to look. No, it's from self-loathing. He was like, I can't stand that I turn this down, but I also don't know how to do it. So like a month later, he calls Fincher back and he's like, I just want you to know that I still can't do this, but I hate myself for it. <laughs> and Fincher's like, well, that's good to hear because we actually haven't hired anyone because basically I've been waiting for you and like you start tomorrow. <laughs> and he rolls up in the, the end of the story is like he and Atticus roll up into the studio the next day or whatever, like the first day they're trying to work on this. And he goes, I mean, Trent is very funny and dry. He's just like, I don't know. Do we like call Hans Zimmer? I think I have his number. <laughs> I mean, what do we do? And what they did instead is, and this is the larger theme here, he remembers seeing a piece of film that just has like Jesse Eisenberg's flip-flops going up the stairs in at Harvard. And Trent's like, I don't know how to quote unquote score a movie, but I know how this moment should feel. It should feel like this. And he starts to play. And it's like, that's, that's the creative process. That's the thing that actually matters. It's like, I don't know how other people do this. I don't know. There's some external thing that's supposed to be the way this all works, I think. And other people have it and I don't. But the real process of, of art making is putting all that self, letting all that self-doubt exist. But just, but, but again, being like, yeah, I hear you self-doubt anyway, how should this moment feel? How does this story unfold if you're Jennifer Egan and just sort of trusting that's the art of it in terms of the process is like the trust in yourself that like that has value and maybe that value won't present itself. That's why the Jennifer Egan story is so cool for fucking years, (laughs) but that to just show up for the blank page in that way with what you uniquely bring is the game. Um, and all of these artists, revenge can put, this is where I got to this, revenge can put you in that place sometimes with a certain clarity <laughs> that you might not have had without the pressure of being told your shit. Yeah. Who is it? The guy from the Black Keys on your pod had great advice where he said- Oh, you listened to it. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really helped, especially during the pandemic when I was, everyone was oh, feeling so- frustrated and he said he was working on an idea and i think danger mouse was like let's try this and he was like no fuck that and then he said dude shut the fuck up and just let me try it and if it's shit it's shit but let me know it's shit let me yep but totally yeah it's i do the exact same thing often with my designer where i'm like put the graphic in pink and he's like it's gonna look fucking terrible dude that goes against all my design you know principles and i'm like mm-hmm. if it's shit we won't use it but right. try it and i was like yeah that's fucking sick just like i thought it would you can't be afraid but sometimes when that happens it is shit and that's okay too that's like, fine too yeah you know, but better to like, know but right it's we get so terrified by the idea it's just it's the constant recurring theme of the space between how you think things are supposed to be and how things actually are and the fear of discovering that it's bad. Like when I, I'm working on a memoir right now, sort of, I'm working on, you know, a version. I, I have a, a book in mind that's basically about my 
side of this era, but it's also about Mark and moving to New York and coming of age and all that good stuff that we're all into. And the, the I'm just confronting again and again, the same thing. I haven't tried to write something this meaty since meet me in the bathroom really. And certainly never anything this personal. And it's very, it's just, um, it's so harrowing that first draft. Cause you're just like, it's so bad. Like the illusion is that, oh yeah, writing, it's so hard or art in general is so hard, but if you're, and to your example, it's like, just do the graphic this way and then it'll be great. And then sometimes you, you're the danger mouse in that situation. You're like, just fucking try it. And then it is trash. And then you're like, wait, that's not the cinematic ending I was looking for, but that is part of it too. Is just like the art, the, the practice of it is to just put yourself through that rather than to expect that it'll be good every time. It's the labor of it, you know? At least that's what I keep telling myself. Boom. That was me and Lizzie Goodman. Damn, she's smart. If you haven't already, read me in the bathroom. It's one of the best books on music I've ever read. And go see the movie. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Joshua Eustace, aka Telephone Tel Aviv, for my beautiful music. And you guys for listening. We'll speak soon. <laughs>